Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Summits Podcast. Today is a special day. It is the start of Q4, hard to believe, but uh, we are now entering October, which happens to be Breast and Liver Cancer Awareness Months. Uh, this episode, we will put a little emphasis, or not a little, we will put a lot of emphasis on the fight against breast cancer. Um, so with that, I am Vince Todd. I'm Daniel Abdallah. I'm Connie Rufenbarger. And yeah, Connie <laughs> is our guest today. Connie, welcome to the Summits Podcast. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for joining Thanks us. Thanks for joining us. Um, why don't you start things off to um, all of our wonderful YouTube subscribers and listeners, uh, wherever they get their podcasts at, and just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, the early years of Connie, if you will. <laughs> oh my. The early years were a long time ago, Vince, but we'll, <laughs> we can go back there. Um, I am from Warsaw, Indiana. I grew up in Warsaw. I uh, married my high school sweetheart. Still married to my high school sweetheart. That's impressive. He, he, I chased him in until he let me catch him actually um we got married he we moved to peoria illinois he worked for price waterhouse we moved back to warsaw which was because we were going to have our first baby which ended up being stephanie so we lived in warsaw raised our children there and life was pretty perfect until i was 34 and um in those days which was 40 years ago to be to be fair there was not screening mammograms. So women would go to their GYN once a year, you'd have your pap and pelvic and a breast exam. So when breast cancer was found, it was found because you could feel it, you could palpate it. Right, okay. So we weren't talking about early detection at that time, to be sure. So I went to my gynecologist and whoops, <laughs> he said, I think we found something. It may not be anything. And back then a, a mammogram was not the machines that the, the women hearing about this are going to picture today. It sure. was a balloon. It was called a zero mammogram. And so there, you didn't get different vision, you know, different views, different sides. It didn't articulate whatever they were looking at the way it does now. The other thing that, that happened back then was you didn't have a biopsy. You went from, they called it the one step. You went from your doctor's office to the surgeon's office, and you were told that you would know when you woke up whether or not you had breast cancer. Mm. And, and that, I don't mean to say that they were unkind or they weren't thoughtful, but for most of the time, that was how that process worked. You could then have an option, and it was a very, very new option, that you could have breast-conserving surgery, which is a lumpectomy, or you could have a mastectomy. The lumpectomy was very similar to what it is today, followed by radiation. And all I could think about was Stephanie and Chad. And I wanted something simple. I wanted to go home and I wanted to be done. Oh, so I went yeah. to sleep. And when I woke up, there sat Steve with big you know, tears running down his face, all alone in the room with me. And I figured probably I'd had breast cancer, which is, I'm not, I'm laughing now. It, it, it certainly wasn't funny, but even just thinking about it, you have to kind of giggle so that you don't start crying all over again. Sure. Um, wonderful nurse who's passed away. She had had breast cancer. She got me up a couple of days later, walked me into the bathroom. She said, you might as well look at this now because if you look at it at home, you're going to pass out. And then you're going to be back in the hospital. <laughs> she was wonderful. And we stayed in touch for years. Um, and I went home. And I felt really good. I was 34. I was healthy. Ten days later, I was starting to play tennis again, which was probably not wise but i wanted to show everybody i was fine <laughs> there were no pink ribbons there was no lay literature there were no magazine articles there was no october you yeah. just had breast cancer and people didn't talk about it yeah. connie had something but most people figured it out so the only recourse i had was to do medical literature well because i had wanted to be a doctor until i talked steve into marrying me and became a, a, a teacher um I was fascinated with the medical literature, and that was the only recourse I had. Was to, and there really wasn't that much. It was the same thing that I'd been through. Mm -hmm. So the beginning was a little rocky, 
And yet it was kind of simple because I was very, very lucky. I was node negative and ERPR positive. Uh, a couple of years later, I went to Indianapolis and found this wonderful plastic surgeon, Wally Zolman. He was a character, but he was an excellent surgeon. Yeah. And I had reconstruction and went on about my life. So those were the very early days. So they did type it, because that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. But then was there any, no. aside from the surgery, that was it? Yeah, that was Interesting. it. Interesting. Because okay. I did not want to have radiation. Okay. I didn't need chemotherapy. And, I, and I, there again, I had a wonderful medical oncologist. He was senior. And when I went for my first appointment, the only thing I can remember about the man is that he had a red tie. You know, you're just like medical oncologist. What is going to happen? Yeah. Um, he said, you could have chemotherapy, but my instinct is you don't need it. Okay. I loved his instinct. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little intimidated by if I don't have it, am I going to have, you know, serious problems? But there was something about him. But this was all new, the way that you can't take science into the clinic until it's proven, until it's right. had multiple <clears throat> trials. But I followed his instinct. Uh, I look back on it now, and I made the decision very, very quickly. I was just blessed that it was the right decision. Mm -hmm. yeah. But then I got back home in a little town like Warsaw, where nobody says the word breast cancer out loud. <laughs> Everybody knew I'd had breast cancer, and that was okay because I got great casseroles, and I'm not a cook, so Steve did really well, and the kids ate well, but what happened was women started calling me, and they said, you know, I've just been diagnosed, and I always had to say, I'm not a doctor. I can tell you what I experienced and what I know, but I'm not a physician, mm -hmm, right. um, but a lot of it was, what do I do now, because the there weren't mastectomy boutiques where you could get prosthesis and bras the way there are now. Uh, but sometimes it was in the middle of a department store with someone who wasn't trained and there you were looking at these things. So I do that often myself. Yeah. <laughs> Wander around yeah. women's department it's stores. Nice awkward. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't run into you people. back then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. well, that was 1990 though, right? You said you were 34. I was 34. So it was like quite a while ago. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I uh, started trying to help them and couldn't help them much because it didn't exist, but we had a pharmacy in town called the Pillbox. And Bill and Sherry Wynn were just amazing people. And they hired a nurse and she went to school and got educated and they stocked the pharmacy and built a dressing room and um, started fitting women with the products. And they came from all around the county because it was the only place and right. they didn't have to go to Chicago. So that was kind of my first uh, I've got a mission type of thing, but I thought it was just a quick little thing. Sure. Soon, their physician, who was a... <laughs> most of the people I dealt with over the 40 years who were really fun and progressive were also ornery <laughs> and were not as concerned about what other people thought. And Rick Cross, red-haired OBGYN in Warsaw, said he had his office get in touch with me, and he said, I'm much more apt to have to deal with breast cancer with my patients because I'm the one who finds it. Mm. Or they come in and someone else has felt it and mm -hmm. they come in and I'm the one who has to direct their care. But he said, that's not really my expertise. I'm excellent at really dangerous deliveries. They call Rick and I'm a great OBGYN. But he said, once I send them off somewhere and they come back and they want more help, he didn't have it. So he said, would you help me with my patients? Well, I love to give my opinion, and I was a teacher, so I, I felt comfortable doing that. And mostly it was just listening to them and trying to find literature for them. And Rick decided I was dangerous because I was not practicing medicine, but I was working with his patients. Mm -hmm. And at that time he realized, and mammography was changing, that finding it with palpation was oftentimes a death knell by that time. Um, and we were going from the zero mammograms into film screen and he was just honoring enough and didn't care what people thought and he started going to national meetings on mammography so a gyn in a large room of radiologists was the odd man out plus he had this woman along who wasn't his nurse wasn't his wife she's just <laughs> following along but he said if you're going to talk to the woman you know need to know what you're talking about sure so through rick cross who then went to Sweden to study with Laszlo Tabar, who was the most prominent 
um, radiologist doing mammography in the world. The fact that Laszlo Tabar let him come was unique because this is not a radiologist and it's a very, you know, special area. He went three times, I believe. He studied mammography. He came back and he actually bought the equipment, put it in his office so that his patients would not have to go out and find a place to do this and that he could supervise their care. And thus, he sent me to the meeting so that when I was talking to his patients, I knew what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And at those meetings, I met some of the leaders in the country and the world uh, doing screening mammography and looking at breast cancer through this new window of opportunity. Uh, Barbara Rabinowitz and uh, Stephen Smith, and I mean, the names, if you're in that field, just, and Laszlo Tabar, stand out like, it, it was fascinating. And we went back, we started a program, I went to every school in the county, went outside the county, we started with industry, our, our Donnelly and all of these companies would set up a program where we'd come in and educate, and then they would help their women get into screening mammography for the first time and get them on a schedule mm-hmm. and started finding early cancers. And it was just a very dynamic, out of the box. I think we only got away with it because we were in such a small community. <laughs> but pretty soon it became known because we were at all these national meetings. Mm-hmm. But that's what he did that introduced me to mammography and to the leaders in the country in mammography and that was about the same time when they realized advocates and patients who were advocates Mm -hmm. could actually help them understand our approach and our needs and i met a dr han and they did a, a a big series it was the nci on screening mammographies, how do you educate women and all of that, and I was on that panel that helped design then, just because Rick had sent me and allowed me to do it locally, to design outreach and what's appropriate, and how do you talk about age of mammography and and risk and all of that. So, you know, sometimes things just roll along and happen. Yeah. You mentioned you played tennis earlier. Would you consider yourself a competitive person? No. No? Okay. I like to get what I want. Yeah. I don't necessarily care about defeating someone else to get there. I'm much more of, I wouldn't say fearless, maybe not smart enough to know when I can't do something. I, I can think outside the medical box because I'm not in the medical box i can have ideas like Mm -hmm. you know going to schools or going to companies or um i can hear something and somehow my brain processes it and if i think about it before i talk about it which doesn't always happen i can usually come up with a way that might work to get it done and back then that's what everything was about is how do we get this done Mm -hmm. how do we get women to have screening mammography how do we get it covered by insurance and then how do you create the network once you determine that they have a suspicious lesion to make sure they're getting to physicians who are going to do you know the right type of biopsy the right type of lab and then have the education for the women once they've been diagnosis, diagnosed. So not competitive, but in a way I do like to win because I like to get what I want. Right, <laughs> and I think that's what has lent itself to everything you just described. I mean, people who don't have that trait, would they have gone into, how, okay, how do, I, how do I start making a difference? How do I help in whichever way possible? I don't know. Not everyone takes that emotion and turns it into action. Mm-hmm. I, if I get an idea, unless I can be convinced otherwise. I don't think it's just me, though. I think it was the timing. It was having Rick Cross behind me. It was beating all of the people from across the country and around the world who were the experts in being accepted. It was being educated, learning the vocabulary, learning what what was needed and what what needed to be created. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of that's outside of the medical purview. It's not pathology, it's not radiology, it's interaction with patients, interaction with with, um, women and creating marketing tools to market it. And about that time, Shirley Temple was the first star to come out and say, you know, I've had breast cancer. This this took the lid off of a very secret box, a very hush-hush box. And then Nancy Brinker, in honor of her sister, 
She turned a national, international spotlight on breast cancer by starting the Susan G. Komen for the Cure races and her fund. She was politically connected. She was from Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this whole world, because of screening mammography and the fact that you could actually start really saving lives and, and minimizing surgeries and stuff, just started to take off. I was always in the right place at the right time. As a matter of fact, Kathy Peachy's sister, Carolyn Peachy, is friends with Nancy Brinker, the woman who founded Komen. And then Komen went on to become um, the founder of uh, a big part of our biorepository. When we needed a lot of money to, to start this biorepository, Dr. Storniolo, Dr. Sue Claire, and myself went to Dallas I had 24 hours to get there. They were at a meeting. Somebody said, why don't you come talk to Nancy Brinker? They called me and said, can you be in Dallas tomorrow? And I said, I think so. I wasn't sure I could, but I managed to get there. And Hallamal Modelberg put her feet up in the chair after we got done, and she said, how much do you think that's going to cost? And I said, I think we could start with $2 million. Well, I thought the two doctors were going to pass out because they come with a proposal that they've worked on for months. <laughs> I was just winging it. You know, you give us $2 million, and I think we can do this. And she said, I think we can do that. It, it was being at the right place at the right time. It was knowing the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. You have a little bit of uh, leeway if you've had breast cancer, a little understanding of it, so you're more accepted as though... You know, and so much of it wasn't because I was competing. It was I was in the right place at the right time. And then some of the best people in the country educated me. I knew enough when to stop talking sometimes. Yeah. So is this still pre-meeting Kathy Peachy or is this Oh, this after? is way pre. Pre, okay. Yeah. okay. Um, when, when we... I'm trying to think back. We had started with, there's an organization called the National Breast Cancer Coalition. And it was a group of very intelligent women from across the country, but primarily Washington. And they had determined that there was not enough money going to breast cancer research. Women were still dying often. Um, and early detection was an issue. Uh, chemotherapy was an issue. And they got together, formed this organization. And there was, again, circumstances. A, a wonderful nurse here in Indianapolis, her name's Michelle Woods. She was at St. Francis. She was a nurse practitioner and so worked in women's health. She had also gone to school, with medical school with Rick Cross. So, you know, it's just... Was Small circle. Serendipitous, yes. She started the Indiana Breast Cancer Coalition. And the whole idea was that we were going to go to Washington and lobby. Now, I had not thought about doing <laughs> that. Um, and that was how I met Kathy Peachy, was on the lobbying trips. Okay. Now, Kathy had already been diagnosed with breast cancer and had had multiple rounds of chemotherapy and, and all of that. But Michelle gathered us all up. We did planes, trains, and automobiles. We, we went at least three times, maybe four, to lobby in Washington, and we actually managed to pass the Department of Defense Breast Cancer Research Bill. And if you let me check my notes, because I don't want to make this number up, I think how many, it was $3.9 billion that we... Wow. Got well. The Army has one of the biggest medical research programs in the world, yeah. which a lot of people are not aware of the fact that they're doing research all of the time. Yeah, um, men have breast cancer, and they have actually, and I don't know, it's not spoken of often, but I met one of the gentlemen in the military. They have a large collection of breast cancer tissue from men who had breast cancer, hmm. who were in the military because that's where they get their their medical care. That program, the Department of Defense, has gone on to fund enormous amounts of research since then. And as an advocate, they had to have one of us on each of the panels. Okay. So that was where, again, my education just kept expanding. We would get, before computers, droves of boxes of proposals from all around the country and the world for, you know, proposals 
reaching for this money in this $3.9 million pocket. And that was a lot of my education in the basic science of it because we had to learn how to speak basic science. So I had worked on the mammography guidelines when those first came out through Rick's office. I was invited to do that on the panel. Then I was invited to read grants for the Department of Defense, which was hard work, but it was fascinating. And then you'd sit at the table with the doctors and the researchers and go through them. And they really wanted our input about will women do this? Is it asking too much? Will women see this? Is there a way to form this so that when we ask women to participate in a clinical trial for this, how do we, how do we phrase that? to make sure that it's an informed consent. There was another group, um, there, were, there were several groups. Amy Langer had one in New York that was all about outreach to minorities. So we would get, they, she raised funding, and we would get proposals and we would fly, here I'm going from Warsaw to Indianapolis to New York or Washington. Um, Chad kept telling my son, kept saying, Mother, don't look at a map. Look like you know where you're going. <laughs> um, but we would sit around the table and evaluate these proposals from a perspective of a patient. Of Would this literature help you get into a screening program? So that was a grand adventure. And where I met one of the scientists who ended up changing my life in the course, I think, of, of breast cancer research history, Warden McCaskill-Stevens. I had met, that's the first time I got to work with her. I had met her at IU. She was a medical oncologist at at IU. She moved on to the NCI, and so I hadn't seen her for a while. But because of our names, Rufenbarger and Stevens, we sat beside each other. So I would read my proposals, and we had to score them. And I was always looking over to see if my score was close to Warda's, because then I knew I was right, or at least (laughs) I was close. She was... At the top of the of the the ladder, as far as respected and admired, but also collegial and open open, just she was just a lovely woman. And to jump many years ahead, we invited Wara back to IU to the Amelia Project, which is a meeting that we fund through the Peachy Fund for mm-hmm. researchers to get together because when they get together, it's electric. You hear just mumbling all, all day. They're talking to people beside them and, and going through the poster sessions. And she spoke. And in the middle of her speech, uh, May Wei, who was a young investigator at IU, held up her hand. And she said, I need normal breast tissue. I'm funded. I'm ready to go with my work. And Warda said, well, it doesn't exist. And what little that does exist, no one's going to share. But what, what existed was when they would take a tumor from a woman during surgery, they would take adjacent tissue, mm-hmm. and they were using that as their normal. It, it, it seemed odd to me. It was a concept I'd not heard before that they needed normal tissue. So during the break, I was sitting by Danny Welch, who's another. I, I got to meet the best. I mean, these are the best people in the world in breast cancer research, and he was there at our meeting. And we were talking about the normal tissue, and he said, well, it's adjacent to the tumor. It's been impacted by the tumor. It's not normal. So if you want to know mm-hmm. when normal goes from normal to pre-malignant mm-hmm. to malignant, you have to know what normal looks like. He said, why don't you do something about that? And I went, yeah, mm-hmm, sure, we'll do that. <laughs> that. That sounds like something easy to do. And then, then again, because I have no restraint and I can't get fired, <laughs> we were finishing up with Warda's... Um, presentation after the break and she asked for questions and I stood up and I said I think we can do that now I'm not sure but that's why I say I'm not competitive I just maybe don't know when to sit down and keep my hand down but I said I think we can do I think women would give normal tissue well it's funny and I nothing personal guys but the guys all went nobody's gonna do that (laughs) and the women all said turned around and went well yeah let's do that and it was like okay, now what have I done? And how are we going to do that? Uh, Warda was smiling. I think Warda thought, wow, something great's just happened in this meeting. And that was what the Amelia Project was about, was consumers, researchers from all the different areas, and then bring in a keynote speaker. And these amazing things can happen. And that's where advocates and women 
really joined the team, I think, as we started to learn during those years. And it was happening not just Connie Rufenbarger. It was happening all over the country because we had gone to Washington and we'd gotten the training. And those women had told us to get out there and do something. You can't get fired from having breast cancer. You may not get asked back, but you can't get (laughs) fired. So, you know, then we just all started thinking, and I'm skipping a lot of important steps, but how do you do that? Right. And IU has always been open to advocates. George Sledge, Steve Williams, Bob Goulet, Chase Lottick, I mean, Anna Maria Storniolo, always treated us more like family and friends <coughs> and equals. And it just seemed like maybe, maybe IU was the place to do that. Now, that's leaving a whole lot of things that happened between now and then. Sure. This is just the line between them and the, and the tissue bank. But Brian Snyder, who's a wonderful researcher, medical oncologist and researcher at IU, mm-hmm. had a project. Um, Dr. Claire had the database. That was a big obstacle. Steve Williams that was the director of the Cancer Center when I went to him, he said, well, I'm not sure I can help you, but I won't stop you. So in other words, don't just don't, I don't need to know everything that's going on. And Dr. Storniolo, God love her, she thought I was nuts, but she's this feisty Italian medical oncologist. (laughs) So she goes to one of her son's soccer games and starts asking perfect strangers, we need normal breast tissue. Would you mind if we put a needle in your breast and took some tissue out? (laughs) And the women went, no. I mean, women have biopsies. Women have pap smears. You know, we're used to, we have babies. (laughs) This does not sound like an obstacle that we couldn't Mm -hmm. handle. And she came back and she said, well, they said they'd do it. So we started with blood, paper forms. We didn't have computer data entry, trained the volunteers. What we didn't have money for, and there was Peachy. Peachy money was behind all this. But what we didn't have money for, we just borrowed from the exam rooms. (laughs) Gloves, needles, tourniquets. Um, We pretty much swept through that building. Um, Komen let us do it on the day of the race. Mm -hmm. Komen is very careful about what they allow during a day for the race. And they have to be, because it could just turn into sure. a... Sure, yeah. yeah. The doctors and the nurses volunteered. We had... We did 600 ladies. Nobody came. We got this whole thing set up, and nobody's there. <laughs> and our heads are on our desk. Brian left the floor. He went to his office. He thought we just really bombed. We hadn't thought about the end of the race. Maybe they'd come. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, it was like that field of dreams. Here they came. <laughs> They, with their families, with their kids, we had all our volunteers in their t-shirts, we had a band. Um, you, can, you couldn't make this stuff up. That was what kicked off the tissue bank. That's what kicked off the tissue bank because if women would give us blood, we're also saying, would you give us breast tissue at some point? And Dr. Storniolo, God love her, she's a classically trained medical oncologist. I mean, classic. You do the, you know, everything is done correctly, which you want. So she's stepping way outside her box. Yeah. <laughs> and like I said, she went to the soccer game and the women said, yeah, no problem. So she became the director of, of the tissue bank. Uh, God love her. And we started small and she was the first one to donate breast tissue. She said, I can't ask other people to do it if I can't, if I won't. And we started small and we grew and eventually, God love Komen, they stepped up because we needed to really grow. Mm -hmm. To have samples for the world, you have to have a lot. To have a computer system, to have a staff. This this became a full-blown project and Peachy was always there with, to fill in those big gaps. We need this now, we need a computer, we need this, we need that. And and that was our goal. we had our own board of directors with Norman and Michelle and myself and, and family member Steve Peachy. We didn't need anyone else's approval. We had the money, we'd earned it, and we could fill in all of those gaps. Mm-hmm. So Steve Williams, God love him, letting us do it. 
Brian Schneider having the project, Anna Maria having the courage to do it, Peachy having the money, and then the women. They came from all over, and it just grew then in, into large enough where we needed freezers and you know we needed all kinds of things and that was Coleman coming in with the money and they have continued to support the tissue bank for years yeah so it, to fast forward real quick yes, just please. just for that particular piece how to give our viewers and listeners um what, what is what does the tissue bank look like today fast forward to 2021 in a nutshell we send samples all over the world we have reviewers from all of the top institutions in the country the we keep we the tissue bank keeps the tissue we will we always keep one sample from every woman that will never share you have a wonderful facility in indianapolis out by the airport that stores one sample from each woman okay so that it'll never be depleted in case something was to come up yep. It's under the direction of Jill Henry, who I think should run the world. <laughs> when they hired her, and I met this very petite little blonde woman, very soft-spoken, I thought, we will eat her alive. She should run the world. She is intelligent, calm, highly educated, very good to her staff and our staff and volunteers. This runs a lot on volunteers. The surgeons and the nurses, the day of the collection, nobody gets paid. This is all volunteer. Jill Henry runs the bank with Anna Maria and then has a fabulous staff that's capable of doing it. We've got, you know, our computer database now is so deep because we reach back into their whole, their history, their family history, and it's updated every two years. We have women who have come back two years later who've had breast cancer and given us another sample. We have serial samples from some patients who have specific parameters to their tissue we have families it's a very large complicated mechanism but any researcher in the world can go on the internet they can type in what they're looking for age group how many live births family history body mass index how many samples do you have what do you have put together a cohort of what they need for their project and then they have to submit it to a very <laughs> very careful panel because this this is more precious than gold it's the mm -hmm. only one in the world and the samples then are pulled they are frozen and they have a chip in there so we know the temperature that those samples are at until they go wherever they go in the world and they've now been all over the world multiple papers published um, and it's only growing more we have women who gave when they didn't have breast cancer we had a woman from bloomington she did a lot when we did the uh, super bowl program she came in gave a sample of her tissue she saw it in the bloomington newspaper showed up without an appointment we took her tissue she came back later and tracy had been diagnosed with breast cancer she came back on her own realizing that that might be important and we got more samples so we now have samples we started doing that letting have women know that if they are diagnosed it would be very valuable to see that progression yeah. and so the bank is it, i could say it's perfect and that would sound weird but when you're the only one in the world who's ever done what they've done and people don't have to use tissue adjacent to tumor anymore to do their research now we're looking at breast cancer prevention we're looking at how do you define who is at risk and who isn't at risk mm -hmm. and it just so happened that with brian schneider milan radovich kathy miller hari nakshatri you have some of the leading researchers in the world who work with people all over the world who have access to that tissue and understand it so can help get that into the right places it, it's been a wild and wonderful dream That's that awesome. i really didn't set out to do you can see i just stumble <laughs> okay they're 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 positive stumbles for sure yeah well but yeah. it takes money and peachy always was there whatever they needed peachy could fill the gap they needed sixty thousand dollars when we started doing single cell genotyping for sixty thousand dollars i thought it was going to be an event <laughs> i went to hari's lab and it was not this they look like a little shoe box <laughs> but it had a sign over it do not touch this <laughs> without hari's permission right but that allowed them to jump right in and start doing it instead of paying someone to do it hundreds of dollars or there's a piece of equipment that was across campus that you had to get in line to use 
And it could be a month before you could get there because it was a very special piece of equipment. And Peachy, under Stephanie's direction, and this new board of directors made sure they had that equipment in the lab. So they're churning these things out and publishing these papers and changing things in real time. I'm sorry. I really like it. It's exciting. <laughs> that's good. Um, so that's a good segue. Let's let's go back in time a little okay. bit now and tell tell us, the or our viewers and folks, the evolution of the PG Fund. Where, how did that get going? It started the day that Kathy Peachy passed away at 43 years old. We had gotten to know each other going to D.C. with our lobbying. And Michelle... We called her our mother hen, and she called us for annoying chicks because <laughs> she had to help us all the time. Um, she didn't call us annoying often, but I think it was we probably were. Um, we really bonded. Uh, Kathy's sister, Carolyn. Kathy's sister, her, both of her sisters, her mother and her father, have had breast cancer. Mm. Yes, and Kathy was, uh, was young and well, very well known. Uh, we all bonded a lot and I was there the day before she passed away and she said you have to keep fighting for my children which I had heard before and I said we will but Michelle was there the day that she passed away and when Michelle came back after work George Sledge and Bob Goulet were there that's how special Kathy was not that every patient isn't but with her treatment she she went bald and sick to testify at the Capitol here in Indianapolis, and we all followed her in, and George was there, George Sledge, and testified for the off-label drug bill, which was that if you have a treatment that is in the final phases, it's efficacious for breast cancer, insurance needs to pay for it because a lot of the drugs that are, are really, really close patients are getting, but if you're not on the trial, if you're the third person and they've already got the first two they need, you have to pay for it yourself if you can get it. Mm. And the the gentleman in charge was not going to hear us, and someone knew his mother. Indianapolis is a small city. Called his mother and said, you will listen to those ladies. <laughs> so we had the press, we had Kathy, we had George Sledge. We testified, and they passed the off-label drug bill. So to know Kathy was to love her. She was also an Indianapolis uh, celebrity. She had Kathy. She had been a florist. The Peachy family, every one of them is brilliant. You really got to watch it when you're working with them and listen, because this is genetically somehow the, some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. But <laughs> Kathy was a hero, and she started Kathy before anybody drank coffee that didn't come out of their cup in the morning at City Market. And Steve Peachy, who's on our board, who's just a wonderful man, he uh, said he used to have to go to work because Kathy would be sitting there talking to the mayor or to a senator or to some business owner. They came to her to talk about issues. And so she would be holding court at the city market <laughs> while Steve's just serving coffee like mad. Um, the first time I met Kathy, she said, what kind of coffee do you like? And I said, well, I like coffee, but I wish it tasted more like chocolate. So she said, she took me to her shop and she got all these things together and created my blend of coffee, which they still sell. She was um, brilliant. Norman was, her husband, was in politics. Uh, he was in charge of running, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say what it's called, but legal legal services for people who can't afford it. So th they both had that, that outreach to the community. They cared about the mm -hmm. community. Um, and we all got to know Kathy Peachy. We traveled together. We, when we'd go to Washington, her sister lived there, Carolyn, in this marvelous big schoolhouse that she turned into a house and had artists and, and all kinds of wonderful things. She ran the event planning for the Kennedy Center so she could really connect us with people. Mm. And we would lobby and travel together and we just became very very close friends kathy would take us to adams morgan which i had never heard of this district with fabulous food in the city that i would never have gone anywhere that far from the hotel and we'd eat ethiopian food and she'd talk about the fact that the ethiopian men were good looking but they were the most beautiful women in the world and she was right so it, it was it was breast cancer it was lobbying it was politics it was women supporting each other um and it was, she said to Michelle Woods and to Norman as she was dying, you have to keep fighting. Michelle could hear her children playing in the yard outside. 
and um, you're kind of stuck, you know? You said yes. So that yeah. was that was when we got started, and her family was very supportive. Warsaw, Indiana, the, the people in Warsaw got behind it in ways because they loved Rick Cross, and he let us use his office as our office. I had access to his staff. We... He'd help us hire the buses. We'd get on the bus, meet in Indianapolis from all over the state, go on the bus. There was one time, is it okay to tell stories you shouldn't? Yeah, yeah always. So Michelle and We can Kathy, edit it out if you Okay, you can take it out. Okay. So. <laughs> Michelle and Kathy and I were on the plane on the way back, and we'd had an extremely successful day. There was not a door that didn't open when we were coming, because by then they knew what we wanted and that we were going to get it, <laughs> if we could. And we just had a glass of wine or two, and we were talking and telling stories about our personal life, getting to bond, know each other better. And we didn't realize that a lot of people could hear us, and when we stood up to leave, there was a round of applause. People knew a lot more about us than we had <laughs> intended. And Kathy just bowed and just gave them this, you know, big... She was bigger than life. She was smarter than than most of us. And, and of course, Michelle was wonderful. And But George and Bob said they came to pay their respects because she had taken treatments that were brand new. The bone marrow transplant, when we went to see her, and she was in isolation, and we couldn't touch her or be with her. So she really, she really left us. She said, you can't stop fighting. And, and where could you be that you'd have all these people in the whole state behind you <clears throat> and the women by the hundreds do the right thing? We took a, a semi-truck load of letters. It was called Do the Right Thing. This was to help lobby for the De Department of Defense bill. And there's pictures of Kathy sitting on top of all the letters in the, in the truck in these boxes. And they wouldn't let us deliver them to the White House, so we just drove up in front of the White House as close as we could get. <laughs> Pushed all the boxes out of the truck. <laughs> nice. So we had fun. We had fun along the way. That's good. Now if you can get away with that today. Well, it was yeah, not today, especially yeah. today. But I mean, it, it was kind of hard to get away if from. If we us. want to try, I know who I'm calling. No. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, but you have to take a lot of women with no hair. It it'll get you further than you think. And a good getaway driver. <laughs> well, the semi didn't move quite as fast as we had hoped. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. And we weren't supposed to be inside of it. <laughs> there you go. You know, break rules to make rules. How's that? Mm -hmm. I gotta write that one down. Real quick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know that one pretty well. Um, unfortunately, <clears throat> personal battle number two, though. Um, when did that happen? Uh, I was fifty years old. Thought I was bulletproof. Went for my mammogram. My dad was at IU. He was in the final days of his life with lung cancer, and I get a phone call from George in my room, in, his, in dad's room, and he says, Connie, you know, I hate to tell you this, but you really need to come over to the office because you've got breast cancer. <laughs> and I knew because I knew from the mammogram I'd seen this little thing, okay. um, and they'd done the needle biopsy there, which is so much better than the way it was the first time. I knew that there was a chance, but I thought, you know, surely lightning is not going to strike in the midst of my dad's passing away because we were very, very close. But... It did. I knew it was going to be small. Um, I went to his office, and there was Kathy, Kathy Miller, who's an amazing medical oncologist, Bob Gulano, and they're, they're in tears. And I'm going, whoa, guys, I saw it on the mammogram. I think it's really small, right? And George is trying to tell everybody, it's just all calm down. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> they didn't want to tell me because they knew Dad's situation and everything. But it was small. I was lucky. It was no negative. Had a wonderful plastic surgeon put me all back together. You'd, it would be hard to have breast cancer twice and be any more blessed than I was. And then I had Anna Maria Storniolo, and I had, I had, you know, some of the best doctors in the country. Mm -hmm. George Sledge is, is considered, like, one of the medical oncologists, and we were just all friends. And so it, as difficult as it was, it difficult? It probably was, but we were too busy getting what we wanted and doing what we wanted that... Uh, Poor Stephanie was leaving the country the next day, and she's there with me. And I said, I've got some Chardonnay and some Twinkies in the drawer over there if you would help me with that. And she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> I, think, I think she did help me, though. So I didn't, I didn't break all those rules by myself. But she, we told her to go ahead and go, go on her business trip, and a friend packed her suitcase. And 
that was hard for her. It, it probably was very hard for Chad and Stephanie to be Connie Rufenberger's kids. But <laughs> well, but look at now. Look at now. I knew Steph would take over. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, now we're gonna, now we're gonna jump back into more present. Um, if you would, I mean, you, you have more knowledge, and I'm speaking for everyone in this room. You guys can kick me later. You have more knowledge than most of us in here combined relative to this topic for sure what would you what would you say has been and, and it's probably very difficult for you to pick one but what would you say is <laughs> the ultimate highlight or maybe two or three highlights like looking back on it now you know you, you've had to kind of reminisce about a lot of things for today what would you say god you know here in 2021 this is the one thing that 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 really just makes me feel great and so maybe a two-part question the second thing is what is still kind of looming out there that man if you just aside from the obvious i think but that you just want to that you really want to grab and, and hope that at some point in time we can check that box as well well some of them are lumped together the fact that that people with medical reputations which are very precious and vulnerable you don't mess <clears> with them <throat> trusted me yeah uh, and open doors rick cross anna maria George, Brian, I mean, th that's startling. Um, the fact that I didn't have to work, that Steve was extremely supportive, that I could travel all over the country, work with the absolute stars, amazing researchers and physicians, even though the mammography panel just about did me in, but coming, me being me getting to do that. Anna Maria, when Steve Williams said, I want you to meet this new medical oncologist, and Anna Maria was sitting there in her suit in Steve Williams' office, and I met her, and she was lovely and impressive, and I looked at her, and I just, I don't know where this comes from, seriously. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. If we can raise the money, would you start a breast cancer prevention program? And very politely, she looked at me and she said, can I think about it? And I thought, <laughs> I'm toast. <laughs> and she came back and she said yes. And that started the Catherine Peachy Breast Cancer Prevention Program. I thought you were gonna say that you said, no, you can't think about it, I, you're gonna do it. Yeah. <laughs> respected them and i respected that i was always asking yeah. them not to step out of the box but leap out of the box because at that time preventing breast cancer was almost you were you were inappropriate to say that out loud to mm -hmm. prevent it so that leads to the answer to the biggest thing that's happened is happening now yeah. the breast cancer the normal tissue you can, the normal tissue is defining because we were it's multiracial and ethnic we've worked so hard to not make this a bank of caucasian women from mm -hmm. indianapolis the african-american population in the city has been amazing and they've been the leaders for across the country we have hispanics we've brought busloads of wonderful hispanic women singing and dancing to these tissue collections we had a jewish collection where they've brought food and music i mean it was just outrageous this tissue is now because we it, we needed the technology to catch up with the tissue but with the genotyping and the single cell genotyping and access to this tissue that you can then look at for pre-cancer in normal so the Catherine Peachy breast cancer prevention program sounded plausible to me at the time because I didn't know at the time it wasn't plausible it was a concept it was a dream it's actually starting to find the answers that will lead to preventing. Now, how you prevent it could be surgical, or it could be, you know, it could be uh, some type of a therapy. I'm not sure exactly where that's going to go because that's still being decided. But to yeah. go from all those stories and adventures and amazing people to living long enough to see a breast cancer prevention become a model that that's attainable and all the people who have stuck with it for all the years across the country yeah. you know Coleman and and the pink ribbon connection and all these 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 women have done this for years and never given up and now you're seeing it bear fruit 
Yes, <laughs> like my uh, the daughter's the the new board's latest cookbook, mm-hmm. just peachy bearing fruit. So what haven't we covered? Uh, you never forget the ones you didn't. Yep. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't feel that way, you wouldn't keep going. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You gotta. Uh, yeah, yep. You know, I, I I totally get that. I've got a very very close friend of mine who is um, terminal now, and you know we all have our stories. We talk about what's your cancer story. I think m- many of us have multiple. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm. The last month, I've it has like just been like a fire inside that has been raging because you think of, of no one, first of all, no one deserves to, to be diagnosed with cancer period. But there are some, you're like, how, like, like you have them up on this, this pedestal, so to speak, like you're talking about prevention and all the healthy habits and, and you name it. And it just, it goes to show you that some, that all that stuff helps, but sometimes it still happens and it, it, it really ticks us off and that's what mm-hmm. it that's what us keeps, us, keeps going. us going it exactly. keeps you going but i will say 40 years ago now 40 years ago i figured we'd do it but that was not stupidity but maybe a little innocence <laughs> but what keeps you going is those stories and what keeps you going is that people keep helping you yeah. i mean heroes peachy People are still working very, very hard, and the next generation comes along and they pick it up and they do it. It's, it's we're not done yet, right. but boy, we're a lot closer than we were. It mm-hmm. takes tissue, technology, talent, and a lot of money. And I don't feel there bad about saying money. No, yeah. <laughs> I can't. That's what it takes. Well, thank you very much for taking the time mm-hmm. and doing the research and reminiscing on a lot of stuff. And coming in and sharing that with us and our, our listeners and our viewers, we appreciate that. It wasn't as easy as I thought it would be because you do have to reach back and think about a lot of different people, but most of it with gratitude. Kathy was a big loss. Mm-hmm. Kathy was a big loss, but she, I think she'd have agreed to do that if it meant we were going to do this. That's how yeah. selfless and wonderful she was. Yeah. So. No, I agree. Um, so thanks again Thank for coming you. in. It was yeah, fun. I appreciate and it. I didn't yeah. have to wear your headphones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's you know, okay. One of the few. You're able to convince Chris not to uh, not to require He that. didn't yeah, want to right see then. me going, I can't hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of the Summits Podcast. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and the notification bell on YouTube and download this episode. If you hit the notification bell, you'll be notified anyway. So <laughs> just do it. There you just, go. Just do it. Take yeah. a second. Let's go. So anyway, thanks again. We'll see everybody soon. Mm-hmm.